Our scripture today is from 2 Samuel chapter 16 as we continue to look at the book of 2 Samuel. If we had needed a title for the entire series of 2 Samuel, we would probably call it Behold Your King, uh, because 2 Samuel really is about King David, the king uh, by whom all other kings of Israel would be measured. Every king following David would be measured by whether they walked in the footsteps of David or did not walk in the footsteps of David. They would either be buried with David and with their fathers or not be buried with David and their fathers. Uh, and so uh, in one sense, we look at this because it's a look at King David. But in another sense, we realize that David is not the perfect king, even though he might be the measure of a good king that all other kings of Israel would be measured by. Uh, he's pretty fallen, as we've seen in the last several weeks. Uh, he's got his own uh, sin uh, and his own struggles. And so we look at Second Samuel and realize David's not the king that Israel needs. They will need, God's people would need a better king even than King David. And so we look at Second Samuel and realize that much of what we see here is reminding us of our greater need for uh, David's greater son, uh, Jesus. So in 2 Samuel 16, we're sort of looking at a, uh, we're in the middle of a story that won't even resolve till chapter 19 uh, of David's son, Absalom, who has staged a coup, a rebellion against the king. He has established himself as king of Israel, and David and many of his uh, servants have fled, or at least are now in the process of fleeing. And so... Uh, what we're looking at here is, uh, in one sense, a chapter that's sort of transitional. It starts by kind of wrapping up David's flight, uh, but then it ends with talking about Absalom's entrance into Jerusalem. Uh, but in another sense, we look at this passage and we see uh, really three, three enemies of David. And it's sort of laid out for us uh, just under these three uh, men and their actions. And so uh, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 16. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me, never find, let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. 
When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to king, the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, well, who, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed him as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen... <coughs> His I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom, shall I, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. <clears throat> then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel gave that, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. <clears throat> some of you know some of our uh, backstory, uh, Amy and mine, in our marriage in 1995. I was a year out of college. We'd been married three years. Uh, we'd been living in Baltimore. 
1995, we moved from Baltimore to Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, for the opportunity of a lifetime to, uh, I was brought down to North Carolina by a furniture store owner uh, who had a fantastically successful furniture store, and he was going to hire me to, uh, to run that store, to manage that store for him. It was in the 90s, in the height of North Carolina furniture, and so it seemed like a brilliant move other than one small thing. It turns out that the owner of the store was um, in, well, in theological terms, he was a lying piece of poop. Now, I'm not going to say that he was uh, an enemy of God. I'm not going to say that he was wicked, even though the things that he did were wicked. Uh, He was deceptive. He uh, not only toward me, but even in the way that he ran his business. Um, And yet, uh, God used it in very... uh, very phenomenal and interesting in ways that only that only God could do. And I, you know, this man was not alone uh, sinful in the actions. I was uh, pretty sinfully moved by money and uh, fame and glory, and so uh, we didn't really do a whole lot of praying when we decided to move. But uh, what we see here in in 2 Samuel 16 is just sort of uh, the interactions of, of whether we would call them wicked men or enemies of God or not, or just men who are doing some wicked things. But it is, uh, it is important before we even look at these, um, as we would call them, ne'er-do-wells, not even rare-do-wells, but ne'er-do-wells. Uh, these, we have to remember that what we're looking at is is the interaction of three men with the Lord's anointed. So we're not looking necessarily at how these men are interacting with uh, another image bearer, although David is simply that, but we're looking at how they're interacting with the Lord's anointed king, the Lord's appointed king of his people. And so uh, the enmity that these people have with David at its heart is enmity with God. Yes, David is a sinner. And yes, very much of what is happening is directly a consequence of David's sin. But it does not change the reality that Absalom and Ziba and Shammai and Ahithophel, they are all sinning against God in that they are sinning against the Lord's anointed. So let's look at these three individuals in this passage. So uh, Ziba in uh, verses 1 to 4. And maybe your first thought is, why are you picking on Ziba? I mean, why not Mephibosheth? And the easy answer is, Ziba is so much easier to say, so we're just going to pick on him. Uh, But that's not exactly true. I know that it looks like Ziba is simply reporting what Mephibosheth has done. He was brought goods to care for and provide for the King David and his, his followers. And if you don't remember Mephibosheth, he is uh, the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. Jonathan was the son of Saul. So Mephibosheth is the grandson of King Saul. And David, after he's uh, 
in Jerusalem as the king of all of Israel, he asks, are there any descendants of Saul, any descendants of Jonathan left that I can show kindness to? And they find this this man, this crippled man, off in a distant town, and David has him brought in, and David cares for him and provides for him, restores all of Saul's lands to this man. He He has him come and eat at the table, at David's table, every day. He doesn't even go back to Saul's lands to live, but he actually lives in Jerusalem and is cared for by David. And so by all appearances, he has thrown all of that off. But is our first appearances accurate? Because what we see here is that Ziba like the furniture store owner, is in theological terms a lying piece of poop. Now this will become clearer in chapter 19. And it's not, you're, you're not actually, it's not a spoiler for you to actually read ahead in the Bible. So feel free to do that. Uh, so these, what I preach on, when I tell you 16, stand for the reading of God's word, It's a pretty good indicator that next week we're going to look at what? 17. You guys are brilliant. I mean, that's like high math that you're accomplishing there. So, yeah, we're going to look at 17 next week. Feel free to read chapter 17 this week. But also go ahead and read through to the end of this entire debacle that Absalom tries to uh, accomplish. And you'll see in chapter 19 specifically why we see that Ziba is lying. But we see, a few, uh, we see a few indicators here in the middle, even in this passage. Yes, he brings some supplies, and they are certainly helpful supplies. And it's not something that we should scoff at. But his approach to David is a little different from the approach of, say, the three men in chapter 15. Ittai, the, the uh, foreigner, the Gittite, uh, or Zadok, the priest, or even Hushai, David's friend. Ziba's approach doesn't, he doesn't say even what Ittai the the Philistine says. Ittai, when he is approaching David to go with him, he says, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, whether, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or life, there also will your servant be. There is no strong covenantal commitment from Ziba. In that sense. In fact, Ziba, after giving his gift, goes back to Jerusalem. When David asks about Mephibosheth, the response is a little suspect. Does Mephibosheth really think that Absalom, now that he's thrown this coup, is going to now hand over the kingdom to Saul's descendants? That that was Absalom's big plan. He's going to usurp his father, and then give the kingdom to this crippled descendant of Saul. No, that doesn't even make sense. No, Ziba is hedging his bets. He's showing signs of support for David because that's what would benefit him. 
If David ever does come back to Jerusalem, it'd be good for him to think of me as someone who's on his side. It would be good for me to be counted among those if David comes back. If he doesn't come back, all right, I'm out a few donkeys, some raisins. Who likes raisins anyway? Some of the summer fruit is gone. But we're fine. He's, he's just sort of playing the cards that are de- dealt to him. You know, a little measured sacrifice every now and then to have uh, the king on my side. It's, it's all right. I wonder if sometimes that's what our service to God looks like. A little, a little measured sacrifice in order to win the king's favor. When we pray, when we commit ourselves to God, do we say whether for death or life, there shall your servant be. Whether it turns out great or not in any way how I expected, I am with the Lord. You know, there's a saying among pastors that I probably shouldn't share with you. Uh, Beware the person who picks you up at the airport. Uh, It has to do with if you're candidating or interviewing, or even more, maybe you've been selected as the pastor and you've moved your family. Uh, Beware the person who picks you up at the airport, that person who is just maybe a little too eager to show you how for you they are. Uh, There's a little bit of Zeba in all of us. Uh, Sometimes our commitment to others is, is a little on the self-serving side. I'm for you because it, it, it puts me in a, in a higher place, puts me in a better place. Uh, early at Hope of Christ, I learned too late that there was a family that was very much involved uh, in the leadership of the church who, uh, whenever I was not around, they would like drop my name as a, well, Leonard said we should do this. And they were things that, had never been discussed. But they were friendly with us. They were friends of ours. We did things with them. And the whole church had this sense that, well, you can't really go against them because they're such good friends with the Baileys. And then uh, when things at church didn't go in the direction that they thought they should go, uh, our friendship uh, ended pretty quickly. Zeba has a, uh, a very self-serving eye toward, toward his sacrifices for David. So next we look at Shimei in verses 5 to 14. Thankfully, aren't we glad that not all enemies are subtle? Not all the enemies are as subtle as Zeba. Some enemies are as subtle as a baseball bat to the face. Or, in this case, a rock to the head. Shimei is not sneaky. He is totally committed to David knowing just how against David he is. uh, And exactly what he thinks of David and his kingdom. He doesn't throw shade or bribes. He throws dirt and rocks and curses. Man of blood. 
The Lord has avenged you all the blood of the house of Saul. It's interesting that uh, Shimei does not believe that David isn't responsible for Saul's death or Jonathan's death or Abner's death, Saul's general, or even uh, Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth, the other guy, Saul's son, after he died. He sees all of this as because of David. All of the blood of Saul's household is on David's hands. Now, Abishai, uh, David's nephew, uh, the brother of Joab, he has a suggestion. You know, medical studies, peer-reviewed medical studies have proven that men without heads are not as loud. And their aim is far deteriorated. Like when they throw rocks at you, when you've removed their heads, they rarely hit you. Now, uh, David won't have anything to do with this. David is not interested in cutting off the head of Shimei. And it's interesting, his reasoning. David says... Uh, God's hand might be in this. This might be because of God. At one level, he points out the lunacy of caring what Shimei thinks of him. He says, guys, my son wants me dead. Why should I care if a Benjaminite wants me dead? Sure, fine, get in line. But on another level, he says, look, it could be that God has sent this man to curse me. And if so, who are we to tell him to stop? The, uh, the Greek philosopher Epictetus is quoted as saying, if anyone tells you that a certain person is speaking ill of you, don't make excuses about what is said of you, but answer, he was ignorant of my other faults or else he would not have mentioned these alone. Yeah, can David say, I didn't shed Saul's blood? Of course he can. But the reality is, even if Shimei is off in his reasons for cursing David, David knows that God has accurate reasons for cursing him. God, he deserves to be cursed, if not because of anything he's done to Saul's family, certainly because of his sin. He says, it may be, though, that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. It's an, there's an interesting uh, Hebrew translation issue with this verse. Uh, there's a textual difference. Uh, and if you have an English standard version, the version that we use at Hope of Christ, you'll notice a, at least a footnote that acknowledges there's another way to understand it. He says, uh, it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction... And the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing. But that word in Hebrew for affliction is the word actually for iniquity. And to read it as affliction and to read it as iniquity are two entirely different things that David is putting his hope in. On the one hand, yes, it's possible that David is simply saying, maybe God will see how hard my life is and he'll be merciful. But a word that is almost always iniquity in the scripture 
David is saying then, possibly, it may be that the Lord will look on my iniquity and the Lord will repay me with good. The Lord will look on my iniquity, not my suffering, not my pain, not my affliction, my sin. The Lord will look on my sin and yet repay me with good. David knows that Shimei is wrong in his reasons for cursing him, but he knows that God would be right in his reasons for cursing him. He knows that he deserves nothing but curse and rejection from God. His sins have brought this on. His sins have brought this specifically on. Nathan warned that this was the consequence of his sin. This is the consequence for David's iniquity. But David knows that the Lord is unspeakably gracious. It is nearly a hope inconceivable. Nearly, but not quite. Because it is the hope that David is conceiving. He is wondering, it might be that the Lord will look on my iniquity and repay me not according to what I deserve, but repay me according to his mercy, will repay me with good. David leaves it in God's hands. And lastly, we look at Ahithophel. Again, you might think that our last enemy we ought to consider is Absalom, but we'll have plenty of time to consider Absalom. We really see Ahithophel because he shows himself to be really the enemy at the table. He is the enemy who had posed as uh, David's trusted advisor. In fact, I think it's not insignificant how the passage ends reminding us that David and Absalom viewed Ahithophel's counsel as the very word of God. Like when he spoke They viewed his counsel as God's counsel itself. Now, this is totally a freebie and an aside and unnecessary to this passage, but can I just tell you, if I ever start leading hope of Christ and claiming God is speaking to me, uh, you should leave. You probably shouldn't leave quietly. You should leave in more of a Shimei fashion. I mean, I'm telling you that now. When, when you do hit me with a stone, I will probably be upset. But when leaders claim that they are speaking for God and they are not speaking God's word, that is suspicious. This is what we know God has said. We don't know if God is calling us to purchase this building. We don't know if God is calling us to purchase land somewhere. We don't know anything beyond that. And leaders who will rally you and will tell you, this is the vision God has given me. Am I saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't illumine, doesn't inspire, doesn't even Uh, give us counsel? I'm not saying that. 
But part of what happened with Ahithophel is that his words were taken as though they were God's words. You know, we'll just barely touch on Hushai and his uh, interactions with Absalom. Uh, It's interesting, you know, you might wonder, well, why was Absalom so taken in? Why was it so easy for Hushai to, uh, to convince him he was with him? Well, when you are a duplicitous person, you just assume everyone else is duplicitous also. Like when you lie a lot, whether other people lie a lot or not, you are very mistrusting because you know that your word isn't worth anything. And so you just assume the people around you, you can't really trust them either. Absalom uh, shows himself to be a duplicitous person, so it's not surprising to him that Hushai would be also. Ahithophel's uh, counsel is wicked. It It is as horrible as it sounds. Uh, You remember that David left 10 of his concubines back at the king's house to kind of watch over it as he left. And so Ahithophel's counsel, without parsing words, is go and rape those 10 women. And then you will show that you have really burned all of your bridges to David. And the people who are following you will be impressed with how wickedly powerful you are. I mean, it is as awful as it sounds. And it doesn't change how awful it is when we remember that it's also what Nathan warned David was going to happen. In chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, Nathan said, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, And give them to your neighbor. And he will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly. But I will do this thing before all of Israel. And before and under the sun. This sounds awful. But I hope that you also hear the hope in this. Ahithophel, his plan is to remove the rightful king, to undermine his rule and authority. And by his wicked plan, he actually fulfills God's word. He becomes an instrument in God's hand. His betrayal actually accomplishes God's will. This is actually the pattern throughout Scripture, isn't it? In Genesis 50, when Joseph's brothers come to him in a sense of regret and remorse and even repentance for what they have done to Joseph, selling him into slavery, pretending he was dead, lying to his father. Do you remember what he says to them as they're all now living in Egypt? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. There is no denying What they did was wicked. What they intended was wicked. What they wanted to accomplish was wicked. He says, but God meant it for good, for the to bring about that many people should be kept alive. In Luke 22, Jesus in 
speaking of his future betrayal, of Judas betraying him. Luke 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. God has determined that Jesus will die on the cross. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas will do the Ahithophel the most evil that we could think. He will betray the Lord's anointed. He will turn his back on and turn him over to be crucified. And yet, Jesus will not go anywhere but where God the Father has determined. Even in Acts chapter 2, in the first sermon at, the sermon at Pentecost, Peter is talking to the people about Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so what happened to Jesus was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and yet you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Great wickedness. And yet it plays right into God's plan and God's hand. This is the ultimate humiliation of anyone who would set himself against the Lord or against the Lord's anointed. Psalm 2 points out, Why do the nations rage? Many nations rage. People plot in vain. Kings set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. But we're told that the Lord sits in heaven and laughs because all they can do is play right into His hand. And don't we see this maybe in less significant ways, but even in our own lives? Don't we see great wicked moments in our life that God uses for good? A miscarriage of a child leads to the pregnancy a couple of months later and a child who would not have been born. The horrors of a failed adoption open the door for an adoption of two beautiful sons. A failed marriage and a divorce that means two young children will be raised by a man who loves them and Jesus and their mother. A lying furniture store owner brings a young couple to Raleigh where they submit to God's call from it into ministry. Whatever you are facing today, the cross reminds us and encourages us that what seems and truly is evil, God can use for good. You are not alone. You are not abandoned. And even if you're sure that the evil in your life is not because of evil people in your life, but because it is a curse brought down on you because of what you have done, because of your own iniquity, you know 
what David wondered. The Lord is able to look to see your iniquity and repay you with good because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we may, may we never think of our salvation as something that we've earned or deserve. But our deliverance comes only because of one thing. You looked on our iniquity and have repaid us with good because you paid your son with our iniquity. He took the curse for us so that we might be blessed in him. May we be moved to humility and unshakable, unspeakable joy. In Jesus' name, amen.